Uh, happy Sabbath, and uh, we are doing our Religious Liberty Sermon a little late this year. Um, it got delayed due to church scheduling, and then um, due to my mother-in-law's death, we had to, I was going to do it that weekend, so it got pushed back again. I want to thank everybody. I do again want to thank this entire church body for the outpouring of love and affection to my family during that time. It was, it was astounding, and to see so many members of this church had come to her funeral. It, was, it really meant a lot to uh, my wife and certainly me, and I want to thank you again. Um, today is Religious Liberty Sabbath for us. We're the only Adventist church doing it today, so we are unique here in Orange. And um, I've been doing these sermons, Religious Liberty sermons, for at least 15 years. And um, I, some people accuse me of getting a little repetitious in them. Um, I don't know why, but each sermon, see, you have to kind of set up the picture and set up the history of how it happened. Big student of history, big student of constitutional law in my life. So those are things that stand out to me, and, and that's where I would focus the sermons and try to be more educational. Well, this year we're going to go a little bit different, differently in the approach because I want to show today the separation of church and state and its importance. And that ruffles a lot of feathers in Adventism and, and many Christian uh, churches say, well, why should we have, you know, state and church separated? Well, anytime you get those two things mixed, you have a problem. If you want to see um, pure, a state run purely by religion, go to some of those Islamic countries that Dave referred to. And you never want your faith to be controlled by elected officials. That, that's a huge mistake. Their agendas and their, their motives are completely different than what we would have as, as Adventists, as Christians. We're better off approaching it in a completely separate way. Now, we are probably the only church in the Christian faith that has such a strong focus on religious liberty. And why is that? Well, we're Sabbath keepers. We've run into trouble for that all the way. We, we, we are a very unique minority religion. Not only are we not accepted by the world, we're not accepted by the Christians. So we, we're in a tough spot. So if we, don't, if we don't fight hard for our faith and fight hard for our freedom, then we are going to be the one, of the, one of the biggest victims of, of liberty being lost. Now, the title of the sermon is, Men in Black Dresses Should Not Instruct Us on Faith. And that is exactly true. Can we bring up the men in black dresses? There they are. That's United States Supreme Court currently. And... Um, the reason that title came to mind, I remember when I was a young lawyer, I, I was talking to a judge one time, and he was trying to encourage us to settle, and he said, well, you tell your client, if he doesn't figure out a way to get this thing resolved, a man in a black dress is going to decide what happens to his money. So, and I said, well, that, that kind of stuck with me, but that's true. And when you look at the Supreme Court, you know, there is a woman in a black dress up there, which makes a little more sense. She gets that frilly thing around her collar. That's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, she is very ill right now. She's got cancer. She's really sick. I imagine she'll, you know, for one reason or another, she'll probably be the next one to sit down. There's also a guy named Stevens who's been on there for since Moses, I think, and um, he's he's probably going to be. So I think Obama will at least have two selections. Now, when I say that, that's important because the President of the United States selects Supreme Court justices. You see the guy sitting in the middle there, uh, Roberts, is your chief justice. Roberts was selected by Bush. Now, what presidents do now is they know they're only going to have a few things that they do that will have long-lasting effects in America. In the old days, they used to pick Supreme Court justices by sitting down and going, who's the smartest judge out there? Who's the most learned scholar? 
Now they think, wait a minute, who has the best, who aligns with me best politically, and who's like 45 to 50 years old, so they'll be there 30 years. And that, that's why you'll see Roberts and Alito in the back row on the far back to our left. Those guys are young guys. They're like, they're, they're barely 50 or late 40s. Those guys haven't been judges long enough to be on the Supreme Court, but they're, they're selected due to their political views and their age. So now Bush could say, 30 years from now, I'll still have an effect on this country through my, through my uh, political philosophy. It's not a good way. And, and it's certainly why a, a good reason right at the top why you wouldn't want politicians, excuse me, um, Supreme Court justices or judges to rule on matters of our faith. It's better that they, those things be separated. The worst part of it is they interpret law. The laws are passed by politicians, blowhard, big mouth politicians. In fact, we have a picture of one coming up here. Now, <laughs> when I was a young man, <laughs> when I was a young man in court, um, we used to have this saying, pictures don't lie. Well, now they do. Um, I, I, that picture was taken at the Nixon Library recently, and I, we were out there at a work function. I saw that podium, so I stood behind it. I said, get my picture of it. I want to act like I was a great politician. Well, then they went back in the marketing department and put me on CNN. But that being stated, we have to be careful of politicians um, deciding religion. Politicians aren't motivated by anything but one thing is to get elected. And they will do and say anything to get elected. And once they're elected, they'll do and say anything to get reelected. I mean, I guarantee Obama right now is wondering how he's going to get reelected. And everything he does is with the mind for four years from now when I'm facing another election. In fact, that, that's what's great that we limited the presidential terms of two because they'd be spending their third term and their fourth term figuring out they're going to get reelected. And in fact, um, Bill Clinton was a master at it. He, he used to he had, he, nobody used polls like Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton used to look at the polls every morning to determine what he believed in because the polls would tell him what, the people are, what all the people are wanting that moment or that day on their whim, and then we'll be going for it. But as we watch in our country, every day the government takes more and more control of everything we do, what we watch, what we eat, how we recreate, how we associate with each other, how we do anything. Um, and our faith has not been overlooked. In fact, now the United States is in business, and that's great. Any of us who are in true business know that the last guy you want on earth involved with your business is a politician because they're the ones that make it impossible to do business. Calvin Coolidge, one of the, great, one of the things he said great was uh, President of the United States many years ago, for, years ago, for those of you who don't know, um, he said the, the business of America is business. Well, he, I never thought he dreamt that the business of America would be to be in business, because that's where we are now. We, we dumped tons of taxpayer money into businesses. This country was great and became great when people expected nothing from the government. And now we expect everything from the government. Um, the, Tom Brokaw wrote a book called The Greatest Generation, and we have people in our church part of that great generation, the Wyndhamus and the Brighams. That was the greatest generation that ever lived. I agree with that. Because they were raised in the Depression, and the government gave them nothing. And they fought through the Depression. And right when they came to young adulthood, bombs fell in Pearl Harbor, and they went to war. And they stepped up, and they expected nothing from the government. They, that was a giving generation. But instead, now we've become, I think it was a great picture in, uh, during Hurricane Katrina, when um, people were standing on the roofs of their house, 
shaking their fists at Washington, D.C. Where are you? Where are you? You should be here. Make this water go away. Give me a new house. Feed me. House me. Educate me. That's your job. And, and angry, you know, not, not, not asking, demanding. And we've created that in America. We, we think that the government's role is to do everything for us. And the government should do nothing for us. And the better, less they do, the better off we will all be. Now, I'm, as it's completely flipped on its head, we have to kind of figure out how do we separate it from our religious practice. And today's approach is going to be, we're going to look at some cases that um, have been ruled on. And we're going to go way back to the beginning of the country and to today. And we're going to see how insane some of the judges who have ruled on matters of faith have been and some of the things they've said. And do we really want those guys to be making those calls? Now, I do have to apologize a little bit. Quick history lesson. One slide on this. Next slide. First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That was put in by our founding fathers, the original draft of the United States Constitution, two clauses, no establishment of religion, no, no stopping the free exercise of religion. So that, that's, that's where we've been trying to interpret the law since. What, what the founding fathers and their brilliance said, look, we don't want the government to be in the religion business, and we don't want the government to be telling people how to worship their God. Pretty simple, but we, we found a way to complicate it. Well, I'll, I'll, we're going to start with an old case back in the early 1800s hundreds in Connecticut. Next slide, please. And then we're going to move forward to today's date. Now, this case was an interesting case. Um, Connecticut had a law, a, a Sunday closing law in essence. It said, you will not serve court papers on anybody on Sabbath. Now, we agree that Sabbath is Sunday because it's not the Jewish Sabbath. It's a Christian Sabbath. And God clearly wanted the Sabbath to be on Sunday because of Easter. Well, this guy got served papers at 12.05 a.m. Sunday morning. And he said, wait a minute. Sabbath is from sundown Saturday to sundown Sunday, the Christian Sabbath, as they called it. Well, this judge weighed in, and he said, wait a minute. Um, I'm not buying that. I think Sabbath starts at dawn on Sunday. And they asked him why, and here's his reasoning. Next slide, please. From nothing I have ever read, not from the evangelists themselves, can I ascertain the precise time of the resurrection of our Savior. And I presume it was not given for mortals to know it. An angel rolled away the stone from the door of the sepulcher. From the whole tenor of the evangelists, although there is not a perfect coincidence as to the time of going to the sepulcher, nor is it necessary for any Christian purpose that there should be, yet it is perfectly apparent that those who went had calculated to go as soon as they could. You keeping up with me, Aaron? Without a breach of the Sabbath. They did not go at the setting of the sun, nor immediately after the twilight of the Jewish Sabbath, referring to you know, the sun going down the day before. Not until after midnight, not until towards the dawning of the day. So this judge and this court ruled that the Sabbath started at dawn because in their interpretation of the Bible, the people who went to, the, you know, Mary and the rest who went to, the, um, went to the tomb in the morning, that's when the Sabbath started, on, the first, on their first Christian Sabbath. So here we have a court trying to determine what a, not only the Sabbath, but 
not only are they wrong on the Sabbath, they're wrong on when it starts. I mean, on any interpretation, Sabbath is sundown to sundown. Pick your day, but it's still sundown to sundown. No, it starts at dawn because we want this to work this way. And there's nothing worse than an agenda-minded judge because they always find a way to get to where they want to go. You know, as a young lawyer, I, I remember going to court and thinking, wow, that guy up there in the black robe, he's brilliant. He wouldn't be a judge if he wasn't the smartest guy around. And in a very short time period, I realized that was very wrong thinking. Um, some of these guys, whew. I mean, it's like any other profession. There's good pastors, there's bad pastors. There's good lawyers, there's bad lawyers. There's good judges, there's bad judges. And there's plenty of bad in all of those things. And certainly in the judge world. And you know how a judge gets his position? The common way for a judge in the state of California to get his position is appointed by the governor of the state. Now, the governor of the state doesn't pick guys, like I said earlier, based upon um, judicial wisdom. They pick guys on politics. And what's worse, I hate to say it, because um, I know there's a lot of Republican people here. By the way, I claim no allegiance to either party. So, um, But the Republicans always pick DAs. They look at the DAs off, the district attorney's office, because they want a law and order guy. Well, let's let a law and order guy who, who the last time he picked up a book or read anything about religious liberty or the, or the Constitution, I think it was in law school 25, 30 years ago. Now we're going to put him on the bench. So, and, and once they're there, then they go to the election process and they get elected because of name recognition. And please, if, when you vote, if you don't know the, what a judge stands for, just don't vote for it. Um, because what happens is, and we do this all the time in the ballots. We say, oh, I'll pick that guy. That guy has a cool name. That guy, you know, that guy's been there. Don't vote on those. Just skip it. You don't have to vote for everybody. Um, but at any rate, th these guys over the years have made incredible, ridiculous rulings on different things. Now, the, let's go to the next case is uh, from the Supreme Court of Tennessee in April 1852. One great thing about the Internet and... Um, and legal research these days, we have these services. I could get my hands on every case that was ever reported from any state in the Union, and that's where I found these. But anyways, did you know that slavery was justified based upon biblical interpretation? Slavery in the United States was determined to be the mark of Cain is why people are black, and the Old Testament allowed slavery, therefore we think slavery is okay, and they're based by the mark of Cain. But in the case of Bennett versus the state, this poor um, African-American gentleman was trying to claim he wasn't a slave. And they said, well, this is very easy to figure out if you're a slave. Listen to this reasoning. In a community where the almost universal condition of a black man is that of slavery, and where his complexion indicates his social condition with almost as infallible certainty as it does his race, his colors would be regarded, in the absence of all other evidence, as a prima facie proof of slavery. That's genius, isn't it? Now, <laughs> we just let's look at his skin, and the darker he is, the more likely it is he's a slave. And this guy's got dark skin. He's a slave. Done. Easy. Um, now, these, that's what I'm saying. When you have these kind of people making decisions, and, and this, this is based on biblical principles in their mind, that it's okay. Now, Moving along to a case in 1967, you see, you, you figure, oh, those are just the old days. They, they couldn't have ruled that way um, these days. In 1967, there's a case called Loving versus Commonwealth of Virginia. Virginia had a law that said the races could not marry together. 
You could not be interracially married. It's against the laws of the state of Virginia. Well, this individual married a black lady, and he was found guilty under their statutes of, of this interracial marriage. Now, this judge, he was really, this, this is my favorite of all of them, quite frankly, because his, his judicial determination and his biblical interpretations are awesome. Is it up there now? Almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, melee, and red, and he placed them in separate continents. And but for the interference with this arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriage. The facts show he separated the races and shows he did not intend for the races to mix. 1967. Many of us were alive then. As I recall reading my Bible, we were all together at one time before the Tower of Babel. So we were pretty well mixed. And I, I don't recall anywhere in the Bible where God said he didn't want us to intermarry. And, but, and thank goodness, this was the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court overturned this case based upon um, the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment has two important clauses, the due process clause meaning, clause, meaning they can't, you can never be found guilty without due process of law of anything. And equal protection clause. And the equal protection clause says if you have two similarly situated people and the law treats them differently, then it's a violation of that clause. Well, when you have white people able to get married and black people able to get married, but a white person, a black person, not able to get married, that's violation of the equal protection clause and the Supreme Court threw it down. But again, this guy took the bench, looked down and professed this thinking he was being brilliant. And, and, and lecturing us on what God intended for people to do. I, I, do we want these people to make determinations on Sabbath observance or anything like that? I think not. Now, let's, let's fast forward to last year. Last year, the next case is Supreme, uh, from the Supreme Court of California, North Coast Women's Care versus San Diego County Superior Court and Guadalupe Benitez. This case is really interesting. We have a clinic down in San Diego and a Christian doctor, a Christian fertility doctor. Well, this lesbian couple decided that they wanted to have a baby. And the lesbian couple determined that the one of the two that they decided should have the baby um, needed a medical procedure to do it. There was some problem with her, with her physically. So they went to this clinic, which required a surgical procedure for her to become artificially inseminated. And this doctor said, well, wait a minute, I, I, I have, I'm a fundamental Christian. I have a real problem being forced to artificially inseminate a lesbian to have a child in this situation. Went to the California Supreme Court. That, that court ruled, accordingly, the First Amendment right to free exercise of religion does not exempt. Remember, we talked about the free exercise clause in the First Amendment. That's what this doctor claimed. Free exercise of religion does not exempt defendant physicians here from conforming their acts to the anti-discrimination requirements, even if compliance poses incidental conflict with defendants' religious beliefs. Incidental conflict? This guy, I mean, that's a pretty heartfelt belief in, in your God and your Bible. And, and, you know, there's a thing in the state of California called the Unruh Act, and it means you can't discriminate against people based on color, creed, or sexual preference. And so now we've thrown this whole group of people in there. And there, there's crazy laws in the state of California. One comes to mind is the, uh, we call it the man in the dress law. Did you know that you cannot discriminate and covered by the Unruh Act is transvestites? 
So if some guy came to your office who's six foot five, bearded, bearded hairy guy in a string dress and a, and a, and a bikini or a, and a short skirt and fishnet stockings and applied for a job, and if you said no based upon his appearance, you violated the law. So what happens is that's to protect transvestites because they're a protected class. And what happens when these laws come through, guys know that. You know, people get that and they figure, that, hey, this is an easy way to make a quick buck. So a guy will do that. You know, big old hairy guy will put on a bikini or a, or a, or a very small dress and come in. And, you know, some poor unsuspecting employer will go, I'm not going to hire you. Look at you. And he'll go, gotcha. I gotcha. And you're going to pay a lot of money now because you violated the law of the state of California. But again, we have, we have the state nudging its nose into areas it doesn't belong. Now, when you think about it, Where's a good place to determine where we should go? The Bible, right? Well, Jesus was confronted with a church-state issue on at least two occasions that I could determine and how he dealt with it. First, let's look at Matthew 22, start at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid hands on him to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said. We know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to what, who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this one really hurts because I hate paying taxes more than anything on the planet. Um, I, I think I have a corrupt government. I think they use my money for wrong, wrongful things. I think they're, it's an unfair tax system. Well, when I say all that stuff about me, I'm looking to, to Jesus. Who, what, what more unfair tax system was there by the Romans? And what more unfair use of the tax money was it than by the Romans? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a coin used to pay the taxes. They brought him a denarius. He asked them, Whose portrait is on this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. Every time I think that our founding fathers came up with this brilliant first-time idea how to deal with certain issues like separation of church and state, you'll find so many times it's in the Bible. And here's a perfect example. Jesus is saying, pay Caesar his stinking taxes. Leave, him, leave God over here and Caesar over here. Don't, don't, you know, don't try to trick me because they're always trying to get him to try to be in violation of, of his own principles. But he's saying, that is the government, that is a government here on the planet that has nothing to do with me. Keep me separate. And then, before Pilate, you go to John 18, starting at verse 33, before Pilate. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Pilate, am I a Jew? Pilate replied, it was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is, it you have, what is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. So we see on two different occasions, Jesus had every opportunity to instruct us, you better tell that government to, to get in line with my laws, and you better get them straightened out, and, and you know, I'll, I don't have to take this from this government. But in both occasions, he said, he kept it separate. He said, look, I'm not part of what you're all about, Pilate. I am, I'm from a different kingdom. I, I, I'm completely separate from you. 
And he said that very clearly with the denarius and, the, and paying the taxes. So I think that the message is loud and clear here. And we always run into problems. I mean, do we want men in black dresses and politicians to determine what the Sabbath day is, how we should pray, how we should worship, how, what our marriage ceremony should be? They should be completely outside all of that. And it, you run into great problems because, you know, we always think, well, what about a nativity scene in a public place? Or what about the Ten Commandments? When you do that, you open the door to everybody. And that's the problem. As Islam grows stronger, as other religions go stronger, do we want Muhammad standing next to the nativity scene? Do we want Muhammad next to the cross? Do we want Buddha next to the cross and the nativity scene? It's best to keep it separate, keep it out, keep all of it out. And that way we're able to have our own religious faith where it belongs. It was suggested to me recently that our church perhaps should get involved with something that Obama was doing, some points of light Obama thing. And I said, no, we can't. We shouldn't cross that line. We don't belong there. We belong on the faith side. Keep government on its side. Well, what do we do and how do we deal with it? And Dave did a great job pointing out religious freedom. And I thought the two, Dave, was generous to the United States. Um, we, we, every day, we have very loud evangelicals screaming to force prayer into school and to force, you know, and, and uh, mind you, they're not going to be understanding the Sabbath when they, when they do that. And we have um, very strong voices trying to push other forms of religion. Well, we have Liberty Magazine. It's probably the best publication out there. Can you give that slide up there? This is the current version of Liberty Magazine. In it is just what I talked about. In Utah, read the article in there. In Utah, they are trying to put up um, a monument in a public park to some sect of Egyptologist-type people who believe in mummification and all this stuff. Because they said, hey, you have your nativity scene, you have all your other stuff, we belong there too. And in fairness and, our, and, in fairness and equal protection, like I was talking about, if you're going to let in one, you've got to let in the other. And, and Liberty Magazine has done a great job. It, it, it's, it's been very true to the separation issues. It's been very true to the issues that we don't need to cross that line. I know it's difficult for Christians to hear, but we don't belong in the state. We, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We don't belong over there. We belong here. We belong in our homes. We, we, our kids can take it our heart. There's not, in my interpretation of the First Amendment, there's nothing to stop a kid from praying in school, and nobody should stop a kid from praying in school. But it shouldn't be coming from the teacher. It shouldn't be coming from the school district. It shouldn't be coming from the state. It shouldn't be coming from Barney Frank, that's for sure. Um, and when you look at it that way, you have to understand that although we would, it might feel warm and fuzzy, we might like it, it's not a good place to go. So next time you're confronted with those issues, understand it, and please read Liberty Magazine. And when you contribute to Liberty Magazine, it's sent everywhere. I have seen it on many judges' desks. I've seen it because we, they send it to judges. They send it to politicians. And what Liberty Magazine does is it talks about the things that made this country great, the Constitution of the United States. And, and you know, some of those guys will read that and go, wow, hey, wait a minute. I remember that 30 years ago in law school. They talked about that thing, that Constitution thing. Um, because they, they obviously forget it many times when they get on the bench and make their rulings. So please, please contribute heartily to Liberty Magazine. Fight hard to keep your church and your state separated because 
That's how we protect ourselves, and that's how we'll continue to protect ourselves. Let's go ahead and end in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Sabbath day, and thank you for the freedom that was written in the Constitution of this country. Lord, I know your hand was in that act when we, when we separate our church from state. This country has been the birthplace of the greatest evangelical movements, and it's only because of the constitutional protections we were provided, and I'm sure it was at your guidance. Lord, please help us to continue, and please have the angels hold back the wind till we get the word out there. Lord, help us to please understand the right way to approach this issue. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.